All right, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yay, I'm so, this is so exciting. Christmas is hands down one of my favorite times of the entire year, second only to Easter. And my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Most Sundays, I get the joy of opening up God's word for you. And uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in one verse, verse chapter, verse chapter, verse number 10. And uh, what I've learned about Christmas is that every single family has very unique traditions and habits when it comes to giving and receiving of presents. In the Fueling home growing up, we have a very simple rule. You turn in a Christmas list. And your Christmas list should be detailed because I don't want to have to wonder what kind of shoes you want. I want to know exactly what kind of shoes you want me to get you or what kind of shirt and what size. So growing up, I would make a Christmas list and my Christmas list would be very detailed. It would be very long. It would have the exact prices, where to find them, where the sales would be. I mean, you get the point. Christmas in our home was about making sure that I was going to give you what you really wanted. Now, I married into the Hurlburt family. And let me just tell you, they don't do that. I married my wife, Brianne, and our first Christmas, I said something like, honey, what would you like for Christmas? And her answer to me was, whatever you would like to get me. Let me just tell you, that doesn't fly. I want to know, what do you want? How much is it? Where do I get it? How much is it going to cost? How much is it going to cost? And where do I get it? Make this as easy for me as humanly possible. So uh, I felt like I was walking into a trap, and so for 13 Christmases, um, I realized every time I went to my home, my family would get me what I asked for. But when I went to the Hurlburt home, um, their family would get me something they thought was meaningful for me. So very different. Now, uh, we would be at Christmas, and regularly, I would think this at the beginning years, that's not what I asked for. Now, I learned, don't say that. Like, that becomes actually very offensive in that kind of home. So I have grown, though, to appreciate their tradition and the way they go about it because the Hurlburts are hands down the best gift givers. It's a regular experience where I get something that I never knew I wanted, and then I get to enjoy it uh, in really meaningful ways. Well, last year, we had uh, a unique experience where my emotions were aroused. And uh, I knew if I wanted a very specific wireless Bluetooth headset, right? Now, if you don't know me, I'm a Bluetooth junkie, all things Bluetooth. They make me very happy. Get rid of cords. I don't want to ever see a cord again in my life. Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. amen. There we go. So I had done the research. I knew exactly what kind of Bluetooth headphones I was going to get, and I put them on my list with a link to the site, with the cost, with the size here, but everything. I knew exactly what I wanted to get. And so I get to Christmas Day, and I open this present, and I pull it out. I'm very excited, and I see a box. And I'm like, I'd, I've never seen this box before in my entire life. Samsung. Oh. <laughs> Immediately emotions, right? And I'm like, gear, wireless headphones. Like, now I know, like, these should probably explode, right? Isn't that what Samsung devices do? They explode and kill people in the process? Can I get an amen from my Apple people, right? <laughs> So I open this up, and I'm feeling feels. You know, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this, because I clearly wrote on there that I want a certain kind of headset. Because if it were my mom, I would have gotten exactly what I asked for, right? So then I open it up, and I proceed to be introduced 
to weird things, like a piece of plastic. And I'm thinking, what, what is this piece of plastic? I thought it was a joke. And so then they tell me that this actually goes around your neck, and it keeps the, the Bluetooth, the wireless stuff from falling off. I thought, that is the dumbest thing I have ever seen in my life. Like, clearly the Samsung people have failed epically at making wireless Bluetooth headphones. So then I'm thinking, all right, well, my mother-in-law's watching me. I know she really likes to give um, gifts that mean something. And uh, even though I'm thinking to myself, I've done all the research, these are not going to be what I want them to be. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so then I go, and I plug them in, and I'm going to power them up. And I'm thinking to myself, can I take them back? Did you buy these online? How do I take back online gifts without telling my mother-in-law? That's not going to work, so I'm stuck with them. It hits me, so I plug them in. And again, I'm not saying I'm perfect, clearly. I'm just saying I can be selfish and an idiot just like all of you, so come on. And uh, so I plug them in, and about an hour later, I go put them on. And I turn on the music, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, these, these sound kind of good. What am I talking about? <laughs> I feel like I'm betraying my, myself right now. And then uh, I take them off, and about six hours later, my wife goes, why are you still wearing those around your neck? And I'm like, what are you talking about, wearing what around my neck? And these things stayed on my body all day long. And I thought, this is the most genius piece of plastic I have ever seen in my entire life. And, uh, and so I put them on, and then I started working out with them. And I thought, these, these are unbelievable. Like my last wireless Bluetooth headphones, they kept falling out. I couldn't keep them in. And within about 48 hours, I thought these were the greatest device I had ever seen in my life, and I don't leave home without them. And I learned on Christmas that sometimes you're going to get something that you don't want. You're going to get something that you didn't even think you needed. And then you're going to open it, and you're going to be skeptical, and you're going to be like, that's not what I thought it was. This doesn't meet my expectations. And then you're going to finally start to use it, and you're going to realize this is exactly what I needed. Now, at this point, you can give me an amen for, uh, well, not Samsung, that's for sure. But I'm going to give them one, one thing. You might have blown it on all your appliances that break constantly. You might have blown it on a million different things. But doggone it, the Samsung Gear headphones, I absolutely love them. So this Christmas, this Christmas service, um, you're going to open up a gift. We're going to give you a gift, and you're going to open up this gift, and you're going to have a few thoughts in your mind. You're going to have this thought. I already know, Pastor Michael, what you and the Village Church want to offer me. I've done my research. I've already concluded that I either want it or I don't want it. I know what kind of God I want. I know what kind of religion I'm going to follow. And so some of you have already walked in here predetermining that the gift we want to offer to you is either going to be unwrapped, used, and enjoyed, and it will change your life, or you're going to say, it's not what I wanted, it's not what I expected, it's not what I asked for, and you're going to walk away. Now, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to meet a group of people who are going to get an incredibly unexpected gift, one that did not meet their expectations. And I'm going to tell you this right now, that this gift that was given to them blew their minds, shattered their world, dismantled all they knew of reality, and ended up being exactly not only what they needed, but ultimately what they really in their soul wanted. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we've met Mary. We've met Joseph. We've seen that Jesus has already been born. He's been wrapped in swaddling cloths and lied in, lied in a manger. And we finally get introduced to the shepherds. Now, the shepherds, generally speaking, in first century Israel, they had a bit of a reputation. Uh, number one, shepherds were considered manly, maybe by American terms. Shepherds were rugged. Shepherds were strong. Shepherds probably, I believe, were very hairy men because that is the manliest kind of man. <laughs> they were strong and able to ward off predators. They slept often, usually typically alone, outside in the cold, 
with animals. Now, come on, like, is that not a manly man? And then a predator comes up and then it takes care of, I mean, this is like really kind of the, the kind of man that in the middle of the desert, you really don't want to meet. But number two, shepherds in first century Israel were generally considered untrustworthy. They were typically men of a certain reputation. They were crooks, they were thieves, and they had a significant reputation to be tellers of tall tales. To the point where if you were in a court of law in first century Israel, there was one class of people who were not allowed to testify, and that would have been shepherds. Because generally, the notion, the understanding around shepherds is that they were untrustworthy. But this is where it gets a little bit more nuanced. Shepherds were considered to be perpetually unclean. Now, you may not be Jewish, you may not understand this distinction, but in the Jewish world, in Jesus' day, there was clean and there was unclean. There was ceremonially prepared to enter into the presence of God and not. And if you were going to have access to the temple or go to church, if you will, you needed to be ceremonially clean. So the shepherds, because they were with animals and feces all of the time, were considered to be perpetually 24-7 unclean, and they were not permitted to go in or near the temple. Likely, the shepherds were not the most spiritual people. They were not the most refined people and they were not the most respected people. And then there is one little nuance. The shepherds of Bethlehem were probably all that and a little more. So the shepherds in Bethlehem were different in one major way. They were likely, the majority of them, hired by the temple. Remember the shepherds where Jesus was born were in what city? Bethlehem in the, in the capital of Israel was... Jerusalem, and they're about six miles apart. So Jesus was born just about six miles outside of Jerusalem in a little village, maybe of three to 500 people called Bethlehem. This was a city of, we'll say primarily, not exclusively, shepherds. And the job of the shepherds hired by the temple was this, to raise, protect, evaluate for purity, and then deliver the firstborn sheep for temple sacrifice. That was their job. In the greatest of ironies, the very men responsible for giving birth to, not literally, but being in the room, caring for, keeping warm, keeping unharmed, the very sheep that were going to go into the temple, they themselves were not even allowed access to go to church. It has been said, I've tried to prove this and verify this, the um, history is a little bit shady, some things go into tradition and you don't know if they root back, but it's been said that the priests um, of the first century, when they were done with their garments, they would give them to the shepherds of Bethlehem. And there was a very specific place right outside of the city walls where um, these sheep were raised. And it was said that when the firstborn, pure, um, unbruised, unadulterated sheep were born, that they would be wrapped in the swaddling cloths of the priest's old garments. And to keep these these um, sheep from being harmed, they would take these sheep and they would place them in what we now know as the manger filled with hay to keep them soft, to keep them protected, and to keep them warm. And these very sheep who would grow up and they would bring them over to the temple. Now these shepherds had a very important job. And what's interesting is of all the people on the planet that God was going to reveal himself to, would you think it would be manly, untrustworthy, Nobody, shepherds, who weren't even allowed to go to church because they were constantly unclean. And you'd say, of course not. That's ridiculous. Why would Jesus even do this? So we're going to see the shepherds. They're going to take center stage in verse 10. 
and they're going to learn three unexpected and I think beautiful realities about the gift of the Messiah, who is Jesus. If you have your notes, you can look on our app. You can take notes there. Number one, Jesus is good news. Verse 10 says this, the angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, just as a little bit of context, um, you have to say fear not. When the angel came to Elizabeth, the angel came to Mary, the angel came to the shepherds, what do they always say? Fear not. Because apparently, if you saw an angel, it was petrifying to the point where you wanted to die, or what they would often do is start worshiping the angel because it was so beyond anything they could comprehend as glorious, they thought this must be God. And even the beautiful, magnificent glory of an angel is still far less than the beautiful, radiant, magnificent glory of God. And the angels would say, don't worship me, I'm just an angel, you gotta worship God. So the angels say, uh, hold on, I'm gonna bring you good news. Now here's why I hate this term. Because good news, in English, it lands flat. It's boring. Yay, I got double-A batteries and socks for Christmas. Yay, that's good news. Yay, my favorite sports team won the competition. Yay. There's something about good news that I just honestly don't like. Positively, uh, I could say like this. I have something pleasant for you. I have some good news. Oh, did you hear? We just got this thing. Good news for me um, is one of these terms that as we translate it into English bothers me immensely because for me, Jesus is not just simply another piece of good news. And I think when you understand what this word means, you get down to the core, this means something way more beautiful. Good news is actually um, the same exact Greek word that we get our word gospel from. Now, many people, they hear the word gospel, they have no idea what this word means. I actually ask Christians often, what does the word gospel mean? And then the answers they give me are all over the place. But at the core, gospel, at its central message, means this good news. But it's not just any good news. So if you go back 700 years before Jesus was born to the book of Isaiah, this is also quoted in the book of Romans. You remember this verse? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. And so the context of this is that there would be a battle. There would be a vicious battle. There would be a lot at stake. And the watchman would sit on the watchtower and he would be watching. And he would be watching for the rumble of dust. Because as the dust rumbled, they knew that there was a runner. And the runner was coming to bring news of defeat or of victory. And the watchmen were actually so trained, they could tell just by the way the runner was running, whether or not it was good news or whether or not it was bad news. And if it was bad news, he ran in and said, the enemy is coming. It's bad news. Get ready. And if it was good news, they would say, how beautiful and the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And why is the mountains? Because they're going through the ravines of Israel and they're getting from one city to another city and it's not easy to get from one place to another. So they'd have these runners who would go and they would wait. And here's at the core what good news or gospel means. It means that you have won, that there is a victory, and that victory emotionally and meaningfully and personally impacts and changes the entire course of your life. It does not mean, yay, I got an iPad for Christmas. It means that your three greatest foes that have ruined your wife and your husband and your body and your kids and your friends and this country, these great foes who have destroyed everything you know, who have changed your past, often for the worse, are affecting negatively your present. Those great foes who have done so much harm in this world, sin and Satan and death, have been objective, objectively with finality defeated. 
That's what it means. And so when the Christian says good news, here's what it means. You are a winner. Your victor is complete in Jesus Christ. Your greatest foes who want to destroy you and your family have been with finality defeated. And now you no longer need to be a slave to sin, Satan, or death. In fact, you are a child of God, and God will work all things out for your good if you love him. That's what that means. That's good news. Now, if I come to you and say, I got some good news. I got some AA batteries and some socks for you for Christmas. Or Samsung Galaxy. You're like, yay, what do you do? I can go get that myself. What you cannot do yourself is obliterate sin, Satan, and death. They will come after you, and they will win. And you have watched them in your life and in so many other people's lives dismantle and destroy all of they know of reality and take away everything that they love. And they have created so much havoc between them and their relationship with God, let alone your life. And so the the shepherds are sitting there, and they are hearing for the first time from an angel, which is objectively petrifying, that you are now going to be the victors. Now, the shepherds thought, like everybody else, that their greatest problem was not sin, Satan, or death, but Rome. They thought it was the oppressors. And thank God that Jesus did not give them what they wanted, but he gave them what they needed. Because if Jesus just got rid of Rome, and he left them in their sin, they would have died and gone to hell and been separated from God forever. What is the victory? Verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. What is the city of David? Bethlehem, the city of shepherds, a savior who is Christ the Lord, God himself, the promised one. This actually word Lord comes up three or four times in chapter two and every other time it refers to God. And so here we know this, that the very God who sent the angel, the very God who sent the angels in a little bit, the Lord himself would be this baby. And that this baby was going to win the victory that was not necessarily what they wanted, but it was exactly what they needed. Let's unpack this more. Number two, Jesus's great joy. So when the enemy, I love it. She give me a big amen. That's a dude. Thank you. <laughs> love it. I'll just take that. When the enemy who's stolen your loved ones, when the enemy who has taken everything that you hold dear is declared, disarmed, defeated, defeated and humiliated, how do you respond? With justice and joy. Justice has been done And when justice has been done on such a personal level, the response is great joy. The angel said to them, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy. That will be for all the people. If you're a Christian, I want to just stop for a moment. And I want to tell you this. There necessarily should be significant highlights and moments of your life where Jesus when you consider the victory he has won for you, has brought you great joy. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you're going to live 24-7 in a state of ecstasy. Can I get an amen from anyone who's been alive for seven seconds, right? But here's what I can tell you. That there should be these pivotal moments in your life where the reality of what Jesus has done for you personally wells you up with great joy. I think if most Christians were going to be polled, um, is God, how is God's approval level? I think most Christians would, would, would say God's approval level is low. 
has God been meeting your expectations? I think most Christians would say, no, God is not meeting my expectations. But let me, let me just break it down to this, right? There should be a straight line between Jesus and great joy. Like, is that logical? That's an equation that makes sense to most of you, right? If you have Jesus, there should be a semi-regular experience of great joy because he has defeated every great obstacle that seeks to destroy, dismantle, and kill you, okay? But then here's the reality. Something interrupts this very simple process. I'm going to tell you what interrupts this process. And this is why so many Christians are not giving God a good approval rating, if you will, in their own lives, in their own minds, in their own hearts. is because one thing stands between them and great joy. It's this. God is not meeting their expectations. God is not meeting their expectations. So I want to talk to everybody in this room. You know exactly who you are. You are not interested in giving your life to Jesus Christ. You are not interested in trusting Jesus for your salvation. You may like the concept of Jesus. You may like the church, but you, you know that, that you have not trusted in Christ. You know that you are not, quote unquote, a Christian. And now you, you're going to look at your Christian mom, dad, brother, friend, aunt, uncle, whatever, and you often are going to see a miserable human being. And I want to look at you and say this, that is not Jesus's fault. That is not Jesus's desire for them. That is the result of Christians falling into this trap that Jesus is obligated to make my life easy and give me more. That is their problem, but I also want to look at you and say this. Jesus also died for that sin of their discontent. And even though they're not living like they should be, thinking like they should be thinking, feeling like they should be feeling, Jesus has objectively paid for that sin, and that sin will not separate them from God because nothing can separate anybody who's trusted in Jesus Christ from God. But you may look at them and say, why should I come to Jesus? Your life is miserable. You've come to Jesus, and I don't want your attitude. And I just want to say, I sympathize, I empathize, and I get it. But I want to look at you and say, do not, do not let the sin of fellow Christians hold you back from what is actually real and true in this life. And that Jesus Christ has taken away your greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death, who want to destroy and kill you, and he's taken away for anybody who would trust in Jesus Christ. Not for people who are good, but for people who will come to him, admit their sin, and trust in him. This is what I love about Jesus, is he doesn't look at you and say, well, the people who are really righteous and the people who are really good, you get to be in heaven. You get to be forgiven. He actually says, no, no, good people go to hell. Forgiven people, they're the ones that get to go to heaven. Forgiven people, not perfect people. The primary reason for Christians' lack of joy, Jesus is not meeting their expectations. And I want to be very clear that Jesus did not meet the shepherd's expectations. And I want to actually draw you into this because there is an incredible irony in this moment. You have this reality of these Jewish shepherds, ostracized from the religious community, low class, if you will, you have these shepherds who are living under Roman occupation, who are longing for political economic freedom. You have these shepherds who are discontent, and here's what happens. They are told good news, victory, and then here's the catch. It's a baby. You know what that means, by the way? Whatever notions of victory they think are going to happen, it's not going to happen for decades. And they experience great joy even though the reality is many of them would not live to see the victory of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. 
And somehow the distance between the proclamation of good news and the experience of the full reality of good news, this gap is where we live with great joy, even though we may still live under Roman occupation like the shepherds. This is the irony of it, is that their joy was not contingent on their current reality. It was contingent in what they believed and knew without a shadow of a doubt God was going to do. You want me to live 60 more years in this body of sin, knowing I'm going to have all eternity freed from this? I can live with joy temporarily, knowing whatever this is, it's finite, and it's going to go away, and Jesus wins. I want to close with this. Jesus is for anyone. Finally, they get to this point at the end of this where um, the angel says to them, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. Some of the people? All the people. Like just really, really religious people? All the people. There's this, um, we'll say just movement of which, again, every movement in Christianity has good things and bad things. and, And basically the movement is that God's greatest concern is for the poor. And I believe God's greatest concern, one of his greatest concerns is for the poor. Do you read this all throughout the Gospels, right? Jesus is obsessed with those who have any resources, living generously and giving to the poor. But here's what I think is interesting. Jesus personally engaged people from every culture, from all nations, he had a way of building relationships with such a broad demographic. I think sometimes we just focus him on ministering to like one class of people. Uh, Here's what I like to think about, the rich. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who was so compelled by Jesus, he ended up buying his tomb and making sure he was buried. He ate and drank with the rich regularly. Do you know that if you're filthy rich, Jesus is for you? Now, I'm not saying that because the church wants your money. I'm saying that because I don't care where you're at in life. He may not be what you want, but he's exactly what you need. He may not be what you expect, but he's exactly what you need. If you're a pagan, you may hate God. You may be deep into the occult. You may be deep into satanic worship. Let me tell you, you're in good company with the Magi because you know the, the Magi were knee-deep in occult worship. You know they were knee-deep in astrology. They were knee-deep in this stuff. And by law, they should have been executed. And yet God meets them in their idolatry, in their occult behavior. He meets them in that and brings them right to the front door of Jesus and introduces them to the Savior of the world. Do you know that if you are in the darkest of dark places in your life, that Jesus is absolutely for you? If you're poor and you're broken... You already know this. Jesus is for you. You've got nothing left. You're empty. You have no finances. Your soul is empty. You are broken to the core. Absolutely, you already know this. Jesus is for you. Are you immoral? You think about the loose women, the prostitutes that Jesus hung around with? You think about the women who were drawn to him? Are you immoral? Are you a tax collector? Are you a thief? Do you steal? Do you rip off poor people so that you can get richer? Do you know that Jesus is exactly for you? It doesn't matter the class of person. Jesus just keeps pursuing them. Do you think you are so religious and you are so good because you go to church and you do this or that and in your religiosity and your pompousness, you know that Jesus is actually for you. He wants to humble you and be your righteousness for you and be your good works for you. I don't care who you are or where you're at or what class you are. Jesus personally engaged every sort of kind of person to make sure that everybody from here on out knew there is nobody that is not welcome at the table. Everybody is welcome to come to faith in Jesus, no matter how vile or frustrated or frustrating you have been or are. Everybody. I think one of the things that I love is that Jesus is ministering. He walks about, and uh, he, he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, and he was always eating with people and partying. There was something about loose women, tax collectors, Pharisees, 
the people in the Sanhedrin, which is the religious leadership of the day in Jerusalem, rich men, poor people, and the broken. And you know what happened when they were around Jesus? They loved being around him. They loved being around him. Even Pontius Pilate, who had every reason to kill the guy, was like, I can't find any fault in this guy. Like, he's honestly pretty nice, right? Everybody sort of liked Jesus, and then sometimes he would preach and he would make people mad, but then they're like, ugh, but I like the guy, you know? And there was something so compelling about the man. Here's what I'm convinced of. Those of you, you've already done your research. You know you're not going to trust in Jesus. You, I want to tell you this. You are rejecting an American 21st century concoction of ideas that is not accurate. What I want you to do is reject Jesus for who Jesus is. And I guarantee you this. If you walked into the room, here's what you would want to do. You'd want to go have a meal with him. You'd want to go talk to him. You know those people that go into a room and they just have some sort of charisma that you're like, ah, I want to be around them? That is exactly what would happen. If Jesus walked in the room, there'd be like this magnet inside of you, right, who was like, I just want to be around that guy. I don't know what it is about that guy, but I want to be around him. And so what you're rejecting, honestly, for most people, is Jesus who looks like your mom or your dad or that hypocrite or that liar or that person who is always failing and struggling or that judgmental person who looks down on you. That's what you're rejecting. But when Jesus walked into a room with a bunch of sinners, nobody, nobody got upset. They were like, yay, Jesus is here. Let's talk. Let's have a drink. Let's party. Let's hang out for a little bit. And people liked him. And then there's us. We walk into a room. Oh, that judgmental person. There's something about the joy of Jesus that I think he would really love for his followers to get more of. It's interesting. You read um, the people who were with him, the apostles, as they write about him, they describe him as being full of love, joy, truth, and grace. Now tell me, like, do you want to be around that? Then you're going to really like Jesus. And unfortunately, um, there is this notion that we have in our brains that it's easy for us to walk away from the picture of him that other people paint and not the reality. I want to close with this idea as we celebrate Christmas. If Jesus walked into this room, who do you think he would talk to first? Just imagine, he opens the doors, runs in, Some of you think because I'm the pastor that he's going to come to me. I do not think Jesus would actually talk to me first in this room. I have this hunch he would find somebody in this room who is broken to the core, who doesn't believe they're good enough. He would quietly walk in and he would sit next to them and he would strike up a conversation with you. And you immediately, probably even before realizing who he actually was, would feel immediately safe, immediately loved, immediately comfortable, and you would know whoever this person is, they're safe. I have a hunch if you, wa- if you walked in the room, um, some of you would say, that is not what I expected. And this is exactly what happened with the shepherds. I guarantee you the shepherds were probably thinking, you mean God could give me good news of great joy? You mean God wants to declare victory for my life? I'm a shepherd. I'm not even allowed to go to church. And Jesus is not what they expected. And so then they go find him. And I would love to know, when I get to heaven, I want to watch a video of this, of this time. I really want to know if they used the priestly garments and wrapped up the lambs prepared for temple sacrifice and put him in a manger. Wouldn't that be one of the greatest ironies, right? I really want to know what this situation looked like, but here's, here's what I know. When the shepherds saw him, they knew he was the lamb of God. When the shepherds saw him, they knew everything that they had worked for, all of these little shadows, these sacrifices that really didn't do anything but were big arrows that pointed to something bigger. They knew that the substance that cast the shadow had finally arrived. And they also knew that for decades, this child was not going to do anything to resolve their current political dilemma. 
and they were still filled with great joy. So we get to Christmas, and some of you are like, you know what, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but right now, he's not meeting my expectations, and I'm looking into my future, I'm looking at what's coming up here, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know that I can wait 60 years or 50 years for me to die or for him to come back, and and here's what I want to just look at you and say, Jesus walks with you through every heartache and every trial, and he is good and he is filled with love and grace and truth and kindness, and he has defeated every one of your enemies. And I want to look at you right now and say, I don't know how long we have in this life, but I guarantee you to follow Jesus and to trust in him, though he does not meet any of your current expectations, though he does not give you all of the things you want, nay, demand from him right now, he is good. And in this path, he will give you everything you need. And there will come a day where you and I will close our eyes for the last time or he will come back. And we will look back on this very short life. And we will never regret for one moment trusting in him. Right now, this is all we see. And I'm here to tell you on behalf of the word of God and Jesus Christ, all of these heartaches will be considered nothing when you get there. And so like the shepherds, we wait. And we wait. And at Christmas, we look back to this first coming where God fulfilled his promise. He said, I will come. And now we look forward. And we wait again. We live in the gap. And I present to you Jesus Christ, the one that the shepherds did not expect, the one that they honestly didn't even think they wanted, but exactly what they needed. I want to present to you, for those of you who've trusted in Jesus Christ, I want to present to you your Savior who maybe you are living in unmet expectations and you are frustrated with God and you're giving him a 20% on his approval rating right now in your life. And I want to ask you to just trust in him. I want to talk to those of you who are, who've already chosen when you walked in here. I'm not opening this present. And even if I did, I don't want it. And my simple prayer for you is that God would show himself to you with clarity that he loves you And he has resolved everything that stands between you and him. So I want to take a moment this Christmas as we just recalibrate, get our brains in the right place. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Father, um, I'm really just aware of, on Christmas, all of the different just backgrounds of people who are here. Lord, on Christmas, we come with family, we come with friends, we come with neighbors, and... um, Lord, for some of us, this is really weird. This is really uncomfortable. Um, We're in church once, maybe a decade, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, but God, would you dismantle any wrong notions of Jesus that anybody in this room might have? Would you gently reassemble us so that we can see him for who he really is? Compelling, kind, loving, gracious, truthful, the one who has taken our sin on his body, soul, and emotions, the one who has loved us so purely that he would give his life and suffer under the full weight of your righteous anger at our sins so that we could be freed from it and be your children. God, for those of us who are just so busy, life is so crazy right now. God, would you center us? 
Would you even use this time of communion just to remind us that you came once and you will come again? And in the wait, would you give us perspective on all of our unmet expectations? Lord, today, would you bring us great joy? Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Verse 13 says this, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. Just FYI, if one angel petrifies you and makes you want to pass out and lay down as though dead, what do you think a multitude of angels would do? And by multitude, we mean thousands upon thousands. And by angels, the word is host. Do you know what host means? Army. (laughs) So in this context, here's what's happening, right? You have myriad upon myriad hosts of armies, angels in full army gear, if you will. If one petrified you, what do you think happened to the shepherds when an entire army of them presented themselves to them? Uh, I, I, I would like to think they passed out. Like, I, again, I can't wait to watch the video when I get to heaven. Like, I feel like they passed out for six hours, woke up the next day. By the time they got to Jesus, they're like, he's a day old. Anyways, so they, so this multitude sings, and here's what they say. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When you, get to, when you get to what Jesus did, Jesus brought God so much glory. He was the fulfillment of plans that were set in motion in eternity past. This was Jesus, fully God and fully man, who willingly became flesh, set aside some of the privileges of deity, who bore on himself the full weight of God's anger at our sin, my anger, or my sin, God's anger at my sin and my place, your sin. Jesus brought God so much glory. That was one part of it, but then there's this other part that Jesus came, not necessarily in the the way that we think about bringing world peace, but he came to bring peace to men. He came to bring peace where there was once hostility between God and God and man. So every culture, I don't know if you realize this, think about this for a moment. Every culture that has ever existed has intuitively understood God is upset. Do you know that? Think about it. You go into every pagan culture, every religious tradition, like you go back and back and back. There's something that they understand until you get to atheism or some version of that. Like every God concept understands that God is upset and we're the problem. In fact, the amount of cultures who have, tra- who have figured out that like there's some kind of blood sacrifice that needs to be made. It's really interesting when you look at cultures that are not even connected to each other. There's something about intuitively. We understand that there is a problem between humanity and God. And every religion on the planet says, here are the things that you need to do to get right with God. Here is the blood you need to shed. Here are the things you need to do until Christianity. Christianity says this, Jesus shed his blood for you. Jesus did the good work for you. God reached down from heaven and he has pulled you up. You did not need to reach up to heaven to God and pull him down. It's fundamentally different. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's different than every other religious system that has ever existed or will ever exist. Because the great lie of Satan is if he can believe or get you to believe that you need to be good enough, then you've already missed the whole point of Jesus. And the whole point of Jesus is that you'll never be good enough, but he can be good for you in your place. And so we really get down to Christmas and you're gonna go home with your kids and your grandkids and your friends and your family and your brothers and your sisters. And here's what you need to remember. That Christmas at its core is about Jesus who brings glory to God and has reconciled us back to God that if this baby was not born, 
then there would be no cross. And if there was no cross, there would be no resurrection. And if there were no resurrection, you would be in your sin and we would die and we would go to hell. This baby represents the only means of peace with God ever and only. And so I come to you offering you this gift. Will you unwrap and own and receive the only way that you will ever be forgiven, the only way you will ever be reconciled to God, the only way that you will ever have a relationship with God? By trusting in Jesus Christ. My deepest desire is that you would. I can't control you. I can't make you do it. But here's what I know. I know that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He's not what you expect. He's exactly what you need. And the more you use him, you know what I mean? Speaking of metaphor, the more amazing he becomes. So if that's something you want to do today, I want to invite you, anybody you see up here, we would just love to pray with you. Maybe you don't want to do this in front of your family and you've got questions. Totally get it. We're here all the time. You can go online, find our emails, email us. Maybe you just got questions. You want to get together with us. That's fine. We don't need you to be anywhere other than where you are. If you've got questions and you're not ready, great. If you're angry and you want to process that, awesome. Our greatest joy would be even just to come alongside of you, encourage you, pray with you, and help you understand who God is from the word of God. Father, even as we hear kids screaming in the hallways and little babies, I'm just reminded you love us like a mom and a dad loves their kids. Even though we cry and we whine, it doesn't change your love for us. Your love is free and it's ours to receive. Thank you for that. Thank you for what the cross declares to us. Thank you that God is, Jesus was born, his birth culminates in the death and resurrection. Thank you that through his death and resurrection, you have removed every obstacle that stands between us and you. And so in that spirit, we worship you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.